Hello and welcome to another edition of the Strip Till Farmer Podcast brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm your host, Noah Newman, technology editor. And today, Strip Tiller Brian Corkle is going to share the ups and downs of his cover cropping journey. We'll listen in as Corkle leads a classroom session at the 2023 National Strip Till Conference as he covers the critical variables to consider when implementing cover crops with strip till, including timing, placement, and termination. Corkill also shares several details about his strip till system, including nutrient management strategies and more. My name is Brian Corkle. Um, I farm about an hour and a half northwest of here. Um, so anybody from that area, I farm in the Kiwani Galva area. My house is almost dead center between Peoria and the Quad Cities. So that's kind of my geography. My family's always been a little bit um, towards the conservation-minded side. So we were one of the first farming operations in our area that back in the early, you know, sometime in the 70s, I was a little kid then, but um, started conservation tillage. Um, I can remember we started no-tilling in I think it was like 1983, which is probably one of the worst years in the world that you could have started trying to no-till um, with the drought and everything and, and just the equipment that we had at our disposal at that time, you know, nothing was really set up for no-till. Um, but we tried it and we stuck with it. Um, so then we kept expanding no-tilling and over a period of, it probably took us maybe 20 years to get to full no-till because we had some fields where our biggest problem was we were, we were growing a lot of corn on corn and it was hard to make that work at that time. So we were doing tillage on corn on corn. Um, but in the late nineties, um, we moved to strip till. So her very first strip till bar actually wasn't really a, a tillage tool and we only did it on bean stubble, but we, we took a, a toolbar and it was 12 rows and we had markers on it and we actually put just put row cleaners on it and we went out and ran in the spring ahead of planting time just to clear strips off that we planted back into. Um, we did that for about two years um, and then probably in about 1998, 1999, um, we actually, well, we started using an anhydrous bar and strip tilling in the fall putting anhydrous on for our nitrogen source. And we did that for a couple of years and then we actually bought a real strip till bar. So, and then we continued to just do anhydrous for a few years. And, and then probably in the mid 2000s, we moved to adding dry fertilizer. So we had the opportunity to buy a used dry fertilizer cart and tying that into our system because we realized the importance of, of putting in, we had some farms that were high in magnesium. So we had issues with nutrients getting tied up. Um, and we had found, we'd been doing some for a couple of years. Um, our retailer had an airflow machine and we were, rather than broadcasting with the airflow machine, we we're actually stripping fertilizer and saw some benefit out of that. And so that's when we decided to add fertilizer to our strip till system. So ever since then, we've put on dry fertilizer and Actually, last fall I've gone I've gone completely completely away from anhydrous, so we're all in crop on on nitrogen. So that's kind of and we started adding cover crops in in about it was 2011 was when we first started planting cover crops. So we added that in there, and so then just trying to figure out how all that plays together. 
So we, um, quite honestly, when we first started playing cover crops, it was for a pretty simple reason. And I imagine it is with a lot of people we were looking to prevent soil erosion and maybe in help with compaction in certain areas because we weren't doing any tillage. A couple of years after doing that, I was at a conference, cover crop conference in Decatur and saw a presentation um, from Dr. Jim Horman, who was at Ohio State University at the time and talked about, he talked a lot about soil health. And it was kind of like a light bulb went off in my head that, okay, we don't need to be looking at this from a erosion standpoint or a compaction standpoint that there can be a lot larger benefits to, to planting a cover crop, whether it's, you know, improving soil health, but also with some of the benefits it can, and, uh, can provide as far as nutrient management. So, so anyways, that's kind of what I'm going to talk about today and, and feel free at any point in time, if you have a question to go ahead and ask a question, or if we want to wait to the end, just, we can do that too. So yeah, there's kind of what I've already covered. Um, I guess it, 2012 is when we started cover crops. Um, time flies and you forget. So, so yeah. So now it's 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 you know as I stated, we we uh, shifted our focus to more on improving soil health and and nutrient management, trying to develop a system. And I don't ever feel like you ever get that system completely figured out because this year I had some stuff, I thought I had things kind of figured out, but mother nature had other ideas this spring. And, and there's some things that I'm gonna reconsider and try to tweak based on what I learned this year. So some of the stuff that we, and it was kind of a, a, a series of events in, in my case this year. So typically I like to do my strip tilling in the fall like I say, I've gone away from anhydrous, so I don't put any nitrogen on other than what's in. I put on mez and potassium, so whatever little bit of nitrogen's in the mez, um, but make my strips in the fall, get the, get the dry fertilizer applied in the fall. Last fall, the tractor that I had to pull the strip till bar with went down, and like on day one, just as I was getting started, so I, did, I wasn't able to get anything done last fall, so um, and also I had my fertilizer purchased already and had a contract. So it was a, a fairly decent price because I'd prepaid it versus what it was during the fall. So I had to have it broadcast, which isn't my normal go-to plan, but sometimes you gotta change things on the fly. So I did, I ended up, got the tractor back over the winter. I did go in and just make strips this spring and this is probably the worst spring you could do that. And I run a knife type strip till bar. So I basically dried out that whole profile because we didn't have a lot of rain this spring. And um, we did have a decent rain after we planted our corn, but it, it just dried out so fast. And, and, and my corn compared to some other neighbors and stuff that were either no-till or strip-tilled last fall, I was kind of lagging at that point. And, most of those didn't have cover crops. So that was part of the issue too. So I put on my first nitrogen application this spring um, with my herbicide, just as the corn was starting to spike through and didn't rain after that for, I don't know, I had a 10th from May 7th to June 28th. So, so yeah, I didn't get any rain to incorporate that. I got tied up in the residue. I did come back at 
No, it was probably V5, V6, and, and we just right before we started getting some rains, I think I had some stuff on, it was about a week before it started raining, and, and now things look fantastic now, but um, we'll see when the combine rolls through what, what uh, some of the early season issues that we had, um, how that affected us. But things look really good now, and, and one thing I will say, as I was walking fields and, and yeah, our stuff was a little more uneven and didn't look as pretty as some of the neighbors when we were getting into that middle June period and we'd been dry for a long time. Some of their fields were, I felt like we're suffering a little bit more than ours because I think some of our, it finally got big enough. It was getting to some moisture that we had some protection because we had the cover crop and maybe saved a little bit moisture at that point that it could finally find. So it felt, I felt like it handled the stress a little bit more later on, but um, just don't know how much it would have affected us up front. So, so one of the things I think I'm going to do before next year, rather than putting on my first pass of nitrogen with a sprayer, I think I'm going to add it to my planter because I'm, I'm currently not putting nitrogen on with my planter. Um, I put on Inferro starter. So I run four gallons of 1034O and some zinc. So that's what I've been doing. But I think now I'm, probably going to go add where I can put some at least the first base amount of nitrogen on with the planter um, rather than broadcasting it so hopefully it gets a better utilization early in the season so this is what I was planting into this spring um, yeah I'm just sitting there in the planter tractor and looking back so that that's been planted and planted into those strips into a cover crop so I have a pretty decent strip um, I think the key in corn, and, and I don't mind, so you gotta be careful, corn versus soybeans, those are two different two different animals completely. So if, if especially like planting green, like I like to do, um, you gotta be pretty careful ahead of corn. And for several years, I, I, was, I was running cereal rye in, in a cover crop mix ahead of corn, but uh, it's just, it's so, uh, it's not, it's, it's not hard to terminate, but you really have to stay on top of it because once it gets the right weather, it can really take off in a short period of time in the spring and cause some issues with, you know, if it gets too tall, then corn has this hard time getting sunlight and the corn gets leggy and, and you can have some issues that way. So this past fall, um, I went to using triticale and, and winter barley. So those aren't as aggressively growing early on in the spring, like a cereal rye would be. So they're a little bit e easier to manage. And I haven't gotten to the point, and, that, and that's something that I'm gonna start working with a little bit this fall. So I'm not putting in any legumes or anything like that at this point in time, because we seed our cover crop in the fall. And labor gets to be an issue too. So having someone that's dedicated to doing that, keeping up with the combine's been a problem. So a lot of times, a lot of our cover crop gets seeded after harvest and like right ahead of the strip till bar. So that's one of the things I kind of want to touch on here. Um, so ideally you would want to have that cover crop already growing before you strip till because then you blow it out of the strip and you have a nice clean strip and you have a nice clean strip to plant into in the spring. A lot of times in our case where we can run into issues is if, you know, it gets seeded maybe three or four days ahead of the strip till bar, you don't have germination yet you run the strip till bar through all you're doing is mixing seed into the strip and then next spring it grows in your strip and then you got to deal with a cover crop in your strip and that 
that can cause issues in a corn system. Uh, with soybeans, you know, we just, we broadcast it. All of our cover crops ahead of soybean, well, ahead of corn too, um, just a vertical tillage tool with an air seeder on it, and just broadcast it and incorporate it all in one pass. Um, that works great for soybeans. It works good ahead of corn if you can get it done early enough before you have to strip till. Because like I say, um, I like to have a clean strip in the spring, but if you don't have it already growing in the fall before you strip till, it's gonna come up in your strip in the spring and, and can potentially cause issues there. So. so I've got a 24 row John Deere planter. Um, and it also helps in not to, we have a uh, clean sweep for row cleaners so I can put down pressure on my row cleaners and kind of clean a strip with a planter that I planted to, but it's 30 inch row planter. I've done a little bit. Um, when we were doing anhydrous, that kind of made it hard to do, but just because it took so much more time. So when I'm strip tilling, you got dry fertilizer, you got anhydrous, none of them, neither one of them run out at the same time. So you're spending a lot of time. It's just logistically trying to get acres covered. So I haven't done a lot ahead of soybeans, but now that, that I'm just strictly dry fertilizer in the fall, I'm going to start work. So we don't, we haven't been in the past, we haven't been necessarily planning on strip tilling ahead of soybeans. Sometimes we did if time allowed, but we already had the fertilizer applied. So I was just making a strip. I wasn't putting fertilizer in that strip. Didn't really see any benefit out of it. But I think, and I've done a little bit, not enough that I'm really super comfortable with yet, but um, I think adding the fertilizer in the strip ahead of soybeans makes, makes is where the difference is gonna come. So still beyond 30 inch. I don't have any issue, really you don't have too many issues planting into a green cover crop with soybeans. I know guys that plant 15 inch beans into a broadcast um, cover crop. Um, I know some guys that actually take their 15 inch row planter and use that to plant the cover crop in the fall and then they can offset and plant in those gaps then the following spring. So they already have kind of a strip. Maybe they didn't use a strip till bar, but they kind of have an open strip where the beans can get going and they don't have necessarily the competition from the cover crop. So, and, and I've planted into cereal rye that's that tall and planted beans and not had an issue. Once in a while, you do have an issue depending on weather, the residue. Does. So that cereal rye, I go in and terminate it. So I terminate it chemically. I would like to be able to roll it down. Um, I want to try that first, but it's hard. So in my area, nobody does that and, and no dealers are willing to bring in a roller so that you can demo it. So I haven't been able to work with that yet. And I hope to at some time because I think that'd be really beneficial. And I think in my case, I like to plant my soybeans early, but I don't want to terminate it that early because I want it to get some growth to it to get more benefit out of it. But I think there's been a lot of promising things that I've seen um, from from rolling, you know, even if when your beans are like V2 stage and going in and rolling, get that, even if you would terminate that cover crop with Roundup or whatever product you use, but being able to go in after that and roll it down and get it matted down so then the soybeans have less competition to grow against. But sometimes that might be too late for as early as I plant my soybeans. That's what I'm concerned about. So I'm probably gonna base that more off of soybean stage than back when we used to 
plant corn first and then soybeans, it, it was an easier decision. If I had the ability to do it, it would have been an easier decision because it kind of matched up time-wise. But um, we found that we've, we were getting better soybean yields by planting early in April, doing that first and then planting a lot of years. I think this is, this is probably the first year and five or six, probably five years that I planted any corn in April. Most of my corn gets planted in early May um, and still get just as good a yield as, as we always have, but we've gotten better yields by planting our soybeans first. So that timing things. Um, so, but anyways, that's um, my strip toe bar. I run a, a twin bin strip uh, for dry fertilizer so I can variable rate my Mez, um, MAP, and sulfur, um, and then uh, potash, uh, because everything, every application that we, almost every application we make on the farm's variable rate. So that's why we wanted to go to a twin bin so we can variable rate those individual products. Um, so yeah, so we've already been talking about nutrient management. We really started focusing more on it about 10 years ago um, over our, period of time since, like I say, about 2007, 2008, when we started adding dry fertilizer to our strip-till system, um, we've been gradually backing off on, and we, and we do block checks in each field so we can keep track of that, and we soil test every three years um, so we can also track it that way, but but we've been backing off on P and K, um, so when I get done with, so as I finished harvesting fields, I got my yield information, sent it off to an independent con consultant that I work with, and then he figures out, okay, here's what removal is. And then we started out, like I say, we started out, we were putting on 100% removal, um, but then we've gradually been backing it off. So had I been able to strip till last fall, we would have been down to about 65% of what that removal called for um, and some of it is because we're putting it in a band and strip till um, some of it is because we've been on most of our farms we've been doing cover crops for quite a few years and and any unused nutrients in that soil get taken up in that cover crop get sequestered in that cover crop so we're we're keeping it in the the growing sphere of your cash crop so just trying to save those nutrients and, and keep them in field rather than having runoff or um, getting into the soil water and things like that. So that's allowed us to continue to back off. And like I say, we, we do block checks in every field. So we run a myriad of rates trying to see, you know, measure how low we can go versus do we need to be higher, things like that. So we're, we're always checking that. And we do the same thing on nitrogen as well. Um, when I make my last side dress pass, as I said earlier, that's when we do our variable variable rate, taking into account our management zones in the field. So a lot of our management zones are based off of historic yield. So you always have areas of a field that yield higher every year, regardless of what the environment is. And you always have areas that yield lower and then you have kind of an average. So. We run like 60% of the field is an average, 20% high yield, 20% low yield, and we just, all of our applications based on those. But then we'll, like with nitrogen this year, we had a bunch of block trials on one farm, 
and we've done that for a couple of years. So we put them in different yield environments and within that field. And so like this year, I think the rates were, we ended up at a hundred pounds total up to 190 pounds total and uh, applied per acre. So, so we, like I say, we always try to check and make sure uh, what we're doing is right or obviously try to challenge ourselves to the lower side. Um, not only from a nutrient stewardship standpoint, but it's more money in my pocket if I can get still get 250 bushel of corn on 20 pounds less applied fertilizers. And let's burn a quick time out to share a message from Yetter Farm Equipment. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with residue management, fertilizer placement, and seedbed preparation solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for success in the face of ever-changing production agriculture challenges. Yetter offers a full lineup of planter attachments designed to perform in varying planting conditions, multiple options for precision fertilizer placement, strip-till units, and stalk rollers for your combine. Yetter products maximize your inputs, save you time, and deliver return on your investment. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now back to the podcast. 2015, then we added a, a high clearance sprayer. Um, also part of, of putting on nitrogen early, mid-season, late-season. Um, spraying all our own acres, terminating our cover crops so we didn't have to rely on a retailer and possibility of, of miscommunication and fields not getting sprayed. I've seen that happen and that can turn into a disaster real quick. Um, we can be a lot more timely. So like, and also, like I said, um, we've gone away from anhydrous. So for a lot of years, I mean, we we're like everybody else, we we're putting on hundred percent of our nitrogen on in the fall. Um, and then it got to the point where like, you know, this, this, you know, we're put, we're using NSERV. We're doing everything we think we need to do. And we, we had tried side dressing with coulter bars and stuff like that. And some years we found a decent response out of that. Some years, you know, I'd put on say 50 pounds with a coulter bar in a dry year, but it didn't yield any better. I'd leave checks and I had 50 pounds more nitrogen and I got four bushel acre or more yield. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So um, we do now, we use it, We so we side dress right along the row, um, right over the root system. So I think we get better utilization of, of nitrogen that way, just from placement. Um, you're not as reliant on rain. Um, if you get some good dews several days in a row, that helps kind of get soaked into the, into the root profile. Um, so I've been pretty sold on that on that scenario, and and it's worked really well for us. And I like to have the ability to make that late side dress application at that V12 to V16 range, where you know I can take into account like this year, had we not started getting rain at the end of June, I was to the point where I've got 110, 120 pounds of nitrogen on. I might not put on anymore if it's not going to rain. There's no sense in putting it out there. So. But then it did start raining, so so we did end up making an, a subsequent application, but we did cut that back just because of, of of the growing season up to that point. But it gives us that flexibility to kind of change how we and the the based on the fluidity of the, of the growing season. 
Um, also in that last pass, I always throw in um, potassium thiosulfate. So getting a little more potassium um, right ahead of pollination and sulfur as well. Um, sulfur is a lot like nitrogen. I'm sure many of you know that. I mean, it, it can leach out of the soil pretty quick and we're not getting the benefit of getting atmospheric sulfur anymore. So sulfur's been become kind of another say well i guess technically it's a micronutrient but it's it's become a little more important that that you put on you know some form of sulfur whether it's in the fall with your dry fertilizer or sometime during the growing season whether it's with kts or ats or or some form of sulfurs uh, usually shows a, a pretty good benefit um so uh, and as i stated earlier for 2024 um I think I'm going to go away from my infero starter and focus more on just putting on nitrogen with my planter based on what I saw this year. Not that, not completely based on this year, but this year was, it, it showed up a lot more. Um, I've always kind of wanted to move to putting on nitrogen with my planter. So I wasn't broadcasting it. I was putting it right next to where, where the corn plants were. So. This is just a picture of, this would have been my second pass, um, applying, I guess on this field, I was doing um, nitrogen, potassium, and sulfur. Usually I do that at my last pass, but I, I did have this one field where it was uh, showed some stress from potassium, so I did apply it at that time. Uh, so it looks tremendously better than that today. Another thing that I, that I have done in the past, and I need to be better about that, um, is taking, and, and I would suggest anybody that's, that's raising cover crops, um, take some biomass samples in your field. So what I do, I think this is, from, from the lab I work with, this is kind of their protocol. So you take, you can take a hoop or you can take, make a square, whether it's 12 inches square, or the first year I did 24 inch square, it was six foot tall cereal rye. I don't recommend doing that. That's a lot of stuff to ship in the mail. And the lab didn't really care for having that much in a package. But um, going out and whether it's 12 inch or 18 inch or whatever it is, taking and, and so you go down, you throw it down in your cover crop and then everything inside that square or circle you clip it off and you got to clip it off about an inch above the ground. So you don't have necessarily the effect of soil splash up on the biomass. You clip off the biomass, put it in a paper bag and send it off to a lab. And you need to check with your lab that you work with because I know some labs I talked to, they said, I, I asked about doing a biomass sample and I said, oh, do you mean a tissue sample? I'm like, no, I don't want a tissue sample. I want to sample what is in that biomass. So I found a lab that, that, that did do that. And uh, I think the first time I did it was in 2017. And I don't know, you probably can't see that very well. So, so it was kind of interesting. They give you back a report. So based on whatever size of whatever size of the area that you pulled the uh, biomass sample from. Um, so they, they, then they give you a report back. So the sample area was 576 square inches, and then it gives you the total dry weight of that. 
and then it'll give you a report of, of the actual biomass, bio the, the pounds per acre. So in this case I did, it was, it was six foot tall, cereal rye, um, and some winter barley that wasn't as tall. And it was on ground that I had put anhydrous on in the fall. So this would have been in 2017. So in that, it, it equated out to about, it was a little over 13,000 pounds of biomass per acre. Um, it had 275 pounds of nitrogen per acre sequestered in that biomass, which is a tremendous amount. That field had only had 100 pounds put on in the fall. So it was also sequestering any mineralized nitrogen that was available. So, so that's sequestered in that biomass. So at some point, as that breaks down, that becomes available to the subsequent growing crop. And it might not all happen in the same growing season but it's gonna be there in future seasons. And if you keep growing cover crops every year, then you're gonna have a certain amount more mineralized nitrogen available than you might normally have if you weren't growing a cover crop. You know, pounds of organic carbon, carbon to nitrogen ratio, in this case, it was 19 to one. Um, has how much sulfur, phosphorus, potassium. So there's like, 78 pounds of phosphorus and 400 pounds of, of potassium that was sequestered in that biomass and then it has some other micronutrients. So those are all nutrients that a certain percentage of those, had there not been a cover crop growing, and it's, I don't know what that percentage would be, a certain percentage of that would be lost to either volatilization or getting into the, to the groundwater. So keeping it in the field, um, Keeping it in the field, that's kind of what we, we look to try to do. So I think I, I mentioned that a little bit. I do uh, uh, employ a, an independent con consultant to kind of help manage all the data and, and make prescriptions and, and uh, recommendations. And I think when, when we first hired him, he, he didn't, you know, he wasn't really bought in on the whole cover crops and all that kind of stuff. But the longer that we work together, he's kind of seen the value and, and some of the things that we've seen the value in. So um, he's been really good to work with. Um, I was a field cooperator for Soil Health Partnership while they were while they were doing their thing. And he would go to meetings with me and, and he really kind of now has bought in. And like I said, we're, as I said, we're a field cooperator. We, we've continued the strip trial that we had set up under them. So um, in the, Three, three years, I think, since, since they ceased to exist, we've continued that strip trial on. So we have cover crop versus no cover crop and trying to continue to gather the data from that for not only our own information, but I try to share that information. And now I think we're, we're, we're working a little bit with uh, Illinois Soybean Association on some of that stuff so they can get that data and, and get that passed out as well. Um, so, just talking strictly about seeding cover crops and strip till. There's lots of different uh, methods. Um, most of ours has been broadcast. We did start out drilling. Um, we had a 15 foot drill. We did that the first year and it became very evident that if we we're gonna grow this over all our acres, that wasn't gonna work because you just can't cover ground with it. It just, it takes too long and takes a lot more uh, labor. So the second year we, we had it mixed with our retailer. They mixed it with a fertilizer and spread it that way. And that was okay, but it was kind of streaky. 
And then we started a, a, a CSP prod, or we had a CSP contract on a couple farms that we hadn't been cover cropping at that point. And that was probably in about 2013, 2014. Basically, they told us what we needed to use and, and when it had to be applied by, and, and I think it had to be applied by like the 15th of September. So in my geography, we don't have a lot of crop harvested by the 15th of September. So we, we flew on for five years, three years with a plane, two years, the last two years we used a helicopter. The helicopter was better than the plane. Um, they could be a little more accurate as far as like field edges and things like that. Um, and it might be differences in, in pilots or whatever, but the, the guy that, that flew it on with a helicopter did a lot better. We didn't have all the streaks and stuff that we maybe had with a plane. Um, a couple of years, it didn't work very well. And, and so like, if, if you're gonna fly it on, I guess my, my recommendation would be um, you want, hopefully you have some soil moisture and you wanna do it right ahead of, of a rain event that you're reasonably expectant is gonna to amount to something. Um, because what we ran into in, in years when it failed, either it was dry before we flew it on then we might get a, a small rain, but there's not it'll there's enough moisture to germinate, but not enough moisture to sustain it. Um, so where it works out best is if you have a little soil moisture ahead of time, and then get a decent rain afterwards, then it, then it can be very successful. Plus, it allows you to get it on prior to harvest, um, which is a big thing, especially if you want to come back and strip till it. Like I said earlier, you want to have some growth, and so you can end up with a nice clean strip. Um, I've seen, you know, like I talked about, I know guys that, that'll go out and seed it with their planters, like with a 15, 15 inch planter, um, interseeding. I did try that a few years ago, um, going out into corn was about knee high and I didn't have the equipment to do it. So we ended up mixing it with urea and top dressing the corn with the urea and the cover crop. and. It'd been really dry up to that point, but we got a really, really decent rain afterwards and we had good growth out of that. Um, that being said, it ended up being the last field that we harvested. And when I pulled it, and it was corn on corn, and when I pulled in there to strip till, because it was the last field we harvested, I couldn't get through the residue. So we ended up having to run vertical tillage over it and that significantly impacted the growing cover crop. So um, we didn't have a lot of, and a lot of it, we had, we had really good radish establishment. We had decent annual rye, we, were, we ran radishes, annual ryegrass, and then uh, a medium red clover, and then there was another type of clover. We had good, radishes were great. The annual ryegrass is pretty decent. The clover was decent, but a little bit spotty. But then after we ran the vertical tillage over it in the following spring, we didn't hardly have anything left there. So I think it has its place. It can be difficult in strip till from all that residue and, and growing cover crop and things like that, just to get the flow of, of that stuff through the strip till bar. But, but it is an opportunity. So we make the strip in the fall and we basically we don't do anything to it after that. And I just plan into it in the spring. I know 
I've got a neighbor that they do some stuff with cover crops and they'll strip till in the fall and they actually, they'll run a strip freshener in the spring, which would help alleviate the issue if you do have cover crop coming up in the strip, that strip freshener will take that out. Um, in my case, like everybody, I mean, labor's an issue. So um, my dad is phasing out of the operation. So it's basically just me. We farm about 1200 acres. Um, so I'm doing, I run the sprayer, I run the strip till bar, I run the planter, I do all that. So time is limited for me and trying to find somebody that you trust to do some of those operations. Cause you can't just throw some guy in the seat that can run a tractor. I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into that. So, so that, that has been an issue. Um, I, I would consider the idea of running a strip freshener in the spring. A lot of times hasn't been too big of an issue, but I mean, it can be. Well, like I said, you know, timing, timing matters, timing, timing, timing. We don't always have control over that. Um, geography, so depending on guys in Southern Illinois, you know, they can get their cover crop on early and they can't, maybe can't necessarily, especially if you're strip tilling with anhydrous or something like that, you gotta wait a little bit longer before you can get started. So your cover crop gets up and going really good. and you can strip into it and it, it works really good. Up in my neck of the woods, you know, we don't get the same amount of growth in the fall and, and it can be a challenge from that standpoint. So like I said, you can end up with cover crop growing in your strip and uh, don't necessarily like that, but sometimes we have to deal with that. Um, one thing I also have done in the past, if, if I've had the time and I have a field that has a good cover crop stand, I see I got rather than I'll go in and, and, and maybe put on, not terminate the cover crop, but go in and put on a residual. And a lot of times I'll stunt the cover crop back a little bit, but if I have time, I, um, I have streamer nozzles that I bought. So they're, they're a three hole streamer nozzle and then I can turn them at an angle so that I can get a pattern of say eight to 10 inches wide. And then I drop my nitrogen over the top of the row. I've done that, but, there again, I gotta have the time to do that. Don't always have the time to do that because it's just another pass across the field. That has worked really well um, because like we have everything's on RTK, um, our sprayer isn't, but but I, I can tell, you know, I, I know from my passes that I'm, you know, over the, obviously over the strips and I'm not driving on the strip, I'm actually applying the nitrogen over the strip, but. Like I say, again, that takes more time. That's another pass. I don't always have that luxury. So that's part of why I'm also looking at putting the nitrogen on my planter. So I can do that, be a lot more efficient with my nitrogen rather than broadcasting it over the ground. And then one big thing, I, when guys ask me about some of the stuff we do, um, sure, it's easy. And I've talked to guys, that, well, I tried cover crop or I tried no-till and it just, I tried it one year and it didn't work. I'm not doing that again. Well. A lot of those things don't work in the first year. Quite honestly, your, your, your soils become used to your whatever system it is that you're using at the time. So if you make a system change, it's gonna take a period of three, four, five years where you start to get back or better than you were previously. So um, some guys will say, well, cover crops are just an expense. I don't want to have that extra expense. And I've, I've always viewed it as, as an investment. Um, 
investment in my soil um, and some of the stuff I've talked about, I mean, we're starting to see the, it took, like I say, about four or five years, but then we start seeing a return from that because I've been able to, to back off more on fertilizer, I believe, than I would have if I'd have just been strip till. Um, some years and, and this year was a pretty good example of it. Um, like with soybeans, I've got about half my soybean acres. I just spot sprayed a few places. I made one application um, back in May. We grow all enlist soybeans, so I made an application of, of enlist and Roundup, terminated the Roundup to terminate the cover crop. Didn't put on a residual at that time because it hadn't rained and there was no rain in the forecast. So I didn't feel like putting my residual out there knowing it was gonna be gone within a week or 10 days. So we didn't put on any residual. Um, had decent cover crop mat um, from the cover crop. And I had two fields I ended up having to come back and spray the whole field because we had a lot of water hemp here a few weeks ago that were just starting to come up. But then I had basically half my acres were basically spray around the outside because you got weeds that migrate in from the fence line. And then just a few places out in the field that I know where we've had weeds in the past and most of the field didn't get any second application. So it's been a huge benefit for weed control as well. And, and even in some years where maybe we still have to spray the whole field, I think it does a good job of our biggest problem is water hemp. It does a really nice job. Zero Rye does a really, really nice job of suppressing water hemp. So I don't think we have the same pressure that we might've had had we not had that cover crop based on what my experience of what it was prior to cover crop and after cover crop. But like I say, you have to be willing to manage the whole system um, and you have to be fluid. You have to be flexible because things change mother nature is always going to win um, but you have to try to deal with it as best you can and one variable can have an effect on everything else you do um, like i say this spring i strip tilled this spring that was probably the worst thing i could have done this year so that had an effect i had even emergence but the fact that i dried out that soil profile for i think i was running about eight inches deep <clears throat> dried out that soil profile you know there wasn't a lot of moisture for for the, the emerging corn to, to latch onto. So that had an effect on everything else. Other thing is don't, don't be afraid to seek out someone to mentor or give you advice. Um, that's why I think a lot of guys I, I talk to or, or see that, that had issues and uh, you know they didn't reach out to someone that had been doing it. So maybe it could help alleviate some mistakes if you had talked to someone um, to kind of help you through that. Because it is, it, it can be a drastic management change from you know, going from conventional tillage to no-till or maybe going from conventional tillage to no-till cover crops at the same time. Uh, those are major system changes and um, having someone that you can feel like you can talk to um, to ask questions is, is important. So at the end of the day, agree with it or not. I don't agree with everything, but um, current regulatory climate and all the money that's being spent on climate smart farming and, and conservation practices and everything else, I don't think that's gonna backtrack any. I think that's just gonna become a way of life and continue further down the track. So um, I think it is important to 
before we're mandated to do things to start um, experimenting and working with some of these different systems and, and trying to get it figured out before you're mandated to do it. And you got like the carbon markets and things like that. Um, those can provide some opportunity for funding to make practice changes. So you're not necessarily shouldering the whole expense of, of making those practice changes. You can try them out and, and you're gonna be compensated for those. So in my case, cause I've been doing it for so long, I can't participate in a lot of those things, but I do try to take advantage of, uh, like I say, I've taken advantage of CSP this would be my third contract in a row. So we've been able to implement a lot of conservation practice. So like in my current one, we're doing some stuff with some waterways, um, doing a cover crop enhancement. So looking at different um, mixes um, and we're gonna have to go back to flying it on, um, but that is what it is and we can manage for that. Um, putting in, we, we're putting in a windbreak, um, Previous CSP contract would put in a bioreactor um, funding in the in the newer contracts isn't nearly as good as for projects like that. But you know, it's a way of exploring and, and implementing different conservation practices and, and not have to foot the bill completely yourself. Um, so and and it's pretty much everything done. I've I've seen benefits out of all of it. So. Um, I've been involved a lot um, in some nutrient loss reduction strategy stuff. And, and that's kind of where I got interested in putting in a bioreactor. Um, so bioreactors in and of themselves aren't gonna solve the problem because it just takes too many of them, but it is kind of interesting. So we have automatic water samplers on inlet and outlet um, and we're involved in uh, water quality research uh, partnership. So there's someone from the University of Illinois that comes up once a month and pulls water samples. And then I get a report every quarter about, you know, how many nutrients or how much nitrates were going in, how many were coming out and just seeing the differences and, and learning about how much, how many nitrates a bioreactor can, can take out of your tile water. Basically we put it on a tile outlet. So that's been really interesting to see and, and actually works really, really well. Um, but it just takes too many of them to, to move that needle. So some of these other practices, cover crops and things like that, they're doing kind of the same thing. So it, it's gonna take a myriad of different things to kind of stave off the, the mandated regulations and, and show that we are trying to move the needle. And that'll do it for this edition of the Strip Till Farmer podcast. Thanks to Brian Corkill for his presentation there. Thanks to you for tuning in, and thanks to our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for making this podcast series possible. Until next time, for all things Strip Till, head to striptillfarmer.com. I'm Noah Newman. Thanks for listening.